Um, I, I want to start off today with a little bit about uh, uh, what I'm seeing in a broad sense in the Christian culture. I don't typically talk about uh, other pastors, and I'm not going to do it today because I'm not going to call names. Because when I was doing my counseling degree, one of the things they taught us is meet before you treat. And so I don't know their stories. I don't know what they're going through. Um, but what I'm seeing, not only in these celebrity pastors and big names and, and people that in their 20s and 30s were boldly proclaiming uh, their faith and, and leading people and doing it. And, and now in their, in their 30s and 40s and even 50s, they're walking away from their faith. And they're doing that just as publicly as they did that they, when they proclaim the faith. They're walking away from the faith just as publicly. And I'm not only seeing that in celebrities, I'm also seeing that in my friends uh, that I've known for decades via Facebook and, and other things where, where they were bought in if you want to use that term, that their faith was solid and they were leading people and discipling people, and now they're not. They've drifted away. Now them, I know a little bit. The celebrity pastors and, and, and those big names in the Christian context, I don't know. But, but what I do know is that no matter what their platform was or their platform is, what they're struggling with isn't unique to them. That we all have places in our lives where doubt and fear creep in. And so let me ask you, have you ever been in a place where this happened? Where doubt and fear crept in? Where maybe your faith isn't working the way that you think it should or the way that you think it could? And where doubt and fear have become louder than truth? And in those moments, you're just not quite sure what to do. You see, church, whether you have been there, whether you're there today, or whether you'll be there tomorrow or years down the road, you may find yourself in your faith in a place where you just don't know what to do. Where you're taking all the steps that you know to take, you're doing all the things that you know to do, and you're being sincere and genuine about it. Like you're not being legalistic, like you are, you are really in, and yet it's not working. And when you find yourself in that place, there is a temptation that's common. It's common, and the stuff that I read from these celebrity pastors, it's common in what my friends have experienced and the temptation is to step away from Christianity, to step away from the gospel, to step away from its lifestyle, because it seems easier, and it seems simple. And sometimes, in some days, in some moments, church, I need you to hear me on this, any of us can be there. Any of us can be in a place where it seems really easy to just step away, and let doubt and fear have their way. Well, today we're going to see what brings us to those places where doubt and fear may be larger than truth. But let me also tell you this, church. We're going to see a better way to respond than to step away. We're going to see a better way to respond than, than, than to take what might feel light and might feel easy and, and might feel right. We're going to see something better to do when doubt and fear are large. Now we're going to be in James chapter 5. 
verses 13 through 18. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you, and it's on page 853 in that Bible. Um, If you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you as our gift to you. We would love for you to have a a Bible in your possession. Um, Like I said, it's on 853 in that Bible. Uh, You can also download the Bible app, and we're there under events and under Fellowship Asheville are all the announcements. There's, um, uh, There's the scriptures there. There's places where you can take notes and save it so you can have it all there in the Bible app. Um, and as we close this series, uh, we've, got, we've got this week in James, we've got next week in James, and then we're done. And we've called this series Wholehearted because what James keeps driving us towards is this wholehearted faith, right? And I hope that as we've gone through this message, you've been, as we've gone through this series, you've been able to see areas in your life where you do have a divided heart. Where, where one foot is firmly planted in the gospel and the other foot is firmly planted somewhere else. And I hope that you've seen the effects of that, the, the, the consequences that that causes, the, the, the problems that that causes. But here's what I hope even more. I hope that you've seen a way to have a wholehearted faith through the gospel. And that you've seen what a wholehearted faith looks like and feels like and that that has has motivated you in some way to pursue that wholehearted faith well today as we finish up well we're not finishing up today we're finishing up James next week and I'll go ahead and give you the lowdown too on what we're doing I'm really excited about it uh this is completely a tangent so add about three minutes on if you're expecting to leave here at a certain time um uh we are we're finishing up James next week Labor Day weekend please come Labor Day weekend we're finishing up James Labor Day weekend uh we're going to do the state of the church the week after that because I want you all to hear what I believe God is is leading us to some paths that God is leading us down as a church Uh, And so we'll do the state of the church in the morning and then the picnic that evening, which is great fun. And then we're going to do a three-week series on just how to engage others in your faith. And so so that'll be fun. After that, we're going to do Song of Solomon, which is a book about relationships and a book about about marriage and dating and, and romance and sex and conflict and everything that a relationship is, that a marriage is. Because here's, and here's why we're doing that. Uh, the census report for this area shows that marriages in Oakley and marriages in this part of, of, of Asheville in particular are in deep trouble. And we want to help. We want to be a resource for our community. We offer re-engage in the spring, but that we only have four or five small groups. So we don't have a lot. Uh, you know, you can take however many people that is through it, but we want to be a help for the community. And so we're doing a six-week series on, on marriage and relationships. So tell everybody you know to join us because we really do want to help. Then we'll do Christmas, and we're going to look at a simple Christmas. It's going to be great fun. And then after that, and y'all can start praying for me now because I'm, I have the same reaction that you're about to have. After that, we're going to do a series on the book of Revelation. Right? That's my reaction. Well, that's not my reaction. My <laughs> reaction. But here's why I'm doing it, because that needs to be my reaction. Because my reaction to Revelation oftentimes is fear, because it's a big, scary book. I don't think God inspired John to write Revelation to scare us. I think he wrote Revelation to show us Jesus. And that's what we're going to do as we go through the book of Revelation. So I'm excited about it. I haven't even mapped it out yet. We, I don't know how long this series is going to last, but, but we're going to be doing that. So, so, so that was my tangent about two weeks in James, and then that's what's happening the rest of the year, which is very exciting. Let's get back to the message. All right. 
All right, let's just dive in. Uh, verse 13. So James chapter 5, verse 13. Let's look at what a wholehearted faith looks like in, in when we're dealing with doubt and fear. Because what James is going to do is he's going to show us some categories that draw us toward doubt and fear. And, and some, some, some context that gives doubt and fear a really loud voice. He starts off in chapter 5, verse 13 saying this. Is anyone among you suffering? Now, suffering is one of those things that pretty much no matter where you open your Bible, you're going to see suffering. Every person that, that the scriptures highlight have suffering in their life, right? Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children, even though God promised them that they would, that they would birth a nation. They, they couldn't have children, and they suffered under that. Jacob dealt with physical pain at the end of his life due to a little wrestling match he partook in, if, you, if you're familiar with that story. Joseph was wrongly put into prison and suffered. Moses suffered under the pressure of leadership, of leading the nation. The prophets of the Old Testament suffered greatly at the end of their lives and died in sometimes horrific ways. Jesus suffered on the cross. Paul had some illness that he suffered with, it, that he prayed against and prayed to be healed, and yet God didn't deliver him from that illness, didn't deliver him from whatever it was, but, but reminded him that, that the grace of the Lord is sufficient. And so you see, no matter where you look in your Bible, suffering is there. As a matter of fact, according to our New Testament, according to our Bible, you actually can't separate your faith from suffering. That suffering is actually an indicator of a genuine faith. And so I think about my friends that have stepped away from the faith, and what they say is that, man, my life is so much easier now. I'm just happier. I feel lighter. All of these things. Suffering is a mark of Christianity and of genuine faith. So much so that one writer, uh, Peter, in the New Testament, he was the guy that was one of the disciples of Jesus, the one that when Jesus said jump, Peter was already in the air. Like that's who Peter was, right? And this is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, he says, beloved, so in other words, the church. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, Peter's point of view is that church suffering is normal. And now suffering can take all kinds of forms, right? It can be, we, we can suffer because of the wrong and sinful choices that we make, and those have consequences that make life hard. That's one form of suffering. But then there's this other part of suffering where, where it is stuff that's outside of us. That's not based on the choices that we made, but, but it's outside of us, and, and it pushes in on us. And there's suffering there. And now here's the deal with suffering, though. That when suffering is prolonged, like when you're earnestly doing what you know to do, and yet suffering is still there. And if you think that, 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 that a genuine faith is free of suffering, and that suffering keeps going and going and going, when that kind of suffering is, is prolonged, here's what it feels like. It feels like God doesn't care anymore. And maybe you've been there where you've prayed and you've prayed and yet nothing's changed. And your kid's still rebellious. Your parents still drive you crazy. School's still hard. Work isn't the work that you want to do, but it's the work that you've got or whatever it is. Your relationship isn't working the way that it should. 
And you keep praying, and it keeps going on and on and on, and nothing changes. And when that suffering is prolonged, sometimes doubt and fear can have a louder voice than truth. And when they do, sometimes prolonged suffering feels like God doesn't care. Well, no matter where your suffering comes from or how long it's lasted, here's what James says to do. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him, what's the word? Pray. If anyone is among you is suffering, let him pray. And here's why. Now, prayer takes all kinds of forms, doesn't it? Like, like each of us like to pray in different ways. Some people like to write out their prayers. Some people like to say their prayers. Some people like to sing their prayers. Some people like to get on their knees and pray. Some people like to stand and pray. Some people like to walk and pray. Some people like to hike and pray. Some people like to sit down by a river and pray. Some people clasp their hands. Some people have hands open. Prayer looks different when you enter in, but here's the deal with prayer. No matter how you enter in, you leave the same way. And that is in submission to God. You see, no matter how you pray, you always leave the same way. You end submitting to God. Prayer is this pathway to submitting to God. And here's, here's, here's like the, the secret sauce of prayer. If you haven't submitted to God, then you're not done praying yet. Because when you pray... You're asking God for, 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 for what you need. You're seeing God for who he is, as glorious and big and merciful and good, like Hannah said. And then you, you, you lay your life before him, and then you leave it there with him. Because you see, when we pray, we submit ourselves to God's plan. That even though there may be suffering there in our life, that God is still sovereign. We submit to his authority that he really is good and that he gets to define what good is. We submit to his rule and the, the writers of the Psalms do this all the time. That's why I love reading the Psalms. If you're an emotional person, I can tend to be an emotional person. The Psalms are full of emotion, right? And there's joy and there's depression and there's anger and there's vengeance. And in, in one psalm in particular, Psalm 73, uh, there's this jealousy that's in the heart of the, of the person who's writing the psalm. And, and, and the, the psalmist is looking at the people of the nation of Israel and one set in particular he's looking at, and it's those who are rich. And they've got the choicest foods and they look good. Right, it, 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 it just describes this life that we've all seen. And the psalmist is like, look at me. I'm the righteous one and I'm suffering. I'm the righteous one and they've got all the goods. It says, then he enters into the house of the Lord and he remembers their destiny. And he remembers his destiny. And he remembers that he's got this relationship with the God, with God that even though they may be happier than he is right now in eternity, he will be happier than they are ever. And he does this shift in his mind. And this is what the psalmists do all the time. They have this but God verse, which sounds inappropriate, but, but, but it's not. It's this, it's this shift where they go, they go, this is what I'm seeing and this is what I'm feeling and this is what I, I think is true, but God this. And in Psalm 73, 
One of the psalmists says, my flesh and my heart may fail. In other words, I look at that and I'm jealous and I don't get it and it drives me crazy. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Forever. You see, James's point is when we suffer, we pray. And we pray because we submit to God. And so when we suffer, we submit to God. Look at the rest of verse 13, because he's going to go from suffering to, to something that might look a little odd. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You see, now, cheerful seems like an odd one, doesn't it? Why does being cheerful create a space where doubt and fear can enter in? Now, here's what happens when we're cheerful. A lot of times when we're cheerful, we can think that we don't need God, right? Because life is working. I remember one of our first trips as a family to Disney World. Uh, Stacy and I had been a few times by herself, and that's great fun. And, and there was one trip in particular that we took um, with both of our boys. And we had just recently learned of my youngest son's diagnosis with autism. So we were creating structures in our home to, to manage life. We were, we were changing his diet to help with symptoms. Like, like it was just full-blown, like, let's figure this out. We had this trip scheduled for Disney, and so we went. And as, as my wife did research, because that's what she does, she researches everything, and she found out Disney has some great resources for families uh, where autism is part of their family. And so we get there, and we had heard you could go up to guest services and get this pass. It's called a DAS pass, a disability and, disability and special needs or something pass. Anyway, you walk up and tell them you have a person with special needs, and they give you this pass where basically you don't have to wait in line. You just go to the fast pass line, or if there isn't a fast pass, they let you to the front of, front of the line, because they want you to have a great experience and they know that if you're waiting in line and, and your child with autism is hot and there's too many people around, like not only is it bad for you, it's bad for everybody around them. And so they want to help minimize that. Now they've changed the rules on it a little bit. But for us, on that trip, we didn't have to wait in line once at Disney World. It was incredible. Anytime we went to a restaurant, because Luke was, was on the special diet, at that point gluten-free was uh, fairly new on the scene. So any restaurant we went to, whether it was a fast food restaurant at Disney World or whether it was a sit-down restaurant at Disney World, the chef would come out, ask about what he could have and what he couldn't have, and then the chef, one of the chefs, there's multiple in the kitchen, but one of the chefs would go back into the kitchen and make a special meal for Luke to have. Incredible. The, the, the hotel took care of us. Everything was taking care of us. And if you're familiar with Disney, I remember this moment very clearly. We were walking by Ariel's Grotto where you can see Prince Eric's castle up, in the, up on the hill. And I remember walking through this little pathway and realizing I hadn't talked to God at all that day, maybe even days while we had been at Disney. And I didn't talk to him because I didn't need him. Disney took care of everything. And you know, in that moment, it really scared me. Everything in our life was working easy until we got the bill. But then everything in our life was working easy. 
And you see, I think, I, I think that's what happens. Is when life is working, we forget our need for God. And when we forget our need for God, we can, even if only for a moment, think that we don't need God. And when we think we don't need God, we don't engage in our relationship with God. Now, James knows that this is a scary place to be. It was in those times, and it is in our times. As a matter of fact, I think this is one of the tools that Satan uses to, to distract the people of God from their relationship with, with God, is to give them a good life, to give them money, to give them, or maybe not to even give them money, but to give them a, a carefree, debtful life. And, and, and life feels good and life feels easy. And I think that's one of Satan's tools because when life is good and life is easy, we feel like we don't need God. And it's easy to forget the God who gives us that life. And so what James is saying is when, 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 when you are cheerful, sing praises to God. And so when life is working, thank God that he gave you a life that's working. Like acknowledge the fact that God did all this. How God did all that at Disney World so that people like my family could come and experience relief and experience joy is beyond my mind. And that's what I did when I realized I hadn't talked to God at all. Immediately I was like, God, thank you for that chef. And thank you thank you that they even know what gluten-free is and they know how to handle it in their kitchen. And, and, and then when we went with our service dog and, the, and Addie couldn't go on the ride, a staff employee would sit there with our dog while our family went and enjoyed the ride. Thank you for that. You see, when life is working, we can thank the God who gave us a life that works. Now look at this next one, because James is going to give a little more attention to this one, because I think it's a, it's a bigger issue, not only in his time, but in our time. So we've got suffering, we've got cheerful, and then in verse 14, he says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now, this word sick is an interesting word. And in, in, the, in, the, in the Greek, there's a word for sick that kind of clumps all illnesses together, whether it's physical illness or me mental illness or spiritual illness, it's all together. This word is a different word. What this word means is this word means like worn out, tired, burned out, can't do it anymore. Now, teachers, you've had one week of school. I'm not, how you doing? Anybody burned out, tired, and ready to give up? You've only got how many? 170? 175. We got two counters. Yes. 175 days left. Right? That's what, this, that's what this word captures. It captures the fact that, that sometimes in life we just get worn out. We just get tired. We just, we just get burned out. You can't move forward on your own anymore. And sometimes that wearing out makes us sick. And that something is really wrong. And that's what James is pointing to. And when something is wrong like this, he does a twist. When, when you're suffering, you pray. That's between you and God. When you're cheerful, you sing praises to God. That's between you and God and maybe the congregation that you're meeting with. But when you are worn out and you can't do it anymore and you can't move forward, he says, listen, this isn't between you and God anymore. This is between you and the congregation. You don't call out to God for help. You've done it, right? You call out to the church for help. 
You see, when something is wrong like this, we need the assistance of other people, and we can tend to keep to ourselves is what James is noticing, because we don't want to bother other people, right? How many of you have said that? I don't want to bother them. I'll just keep going. Fake it till you make it. See, when something is wrong, that's when we can wrongly isolate ourselves. And so James's command is, listen, if something is wrong with you, make the call. Make the call to the elders of the church. And here's, here's why, because they're the ones that can help. Look at, look at how the elders help. It says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, the elders were the ones uh, who led the church. We're an elder-led church. The structure is very similar. And people would go to the elders because they're the ones that could release not only the resources that the Lord has, but the resources that the Lord has in the body, in the church. And so the elders can pray over them, and, 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 and they could anoint them with oil, and, 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 and praying over them is, is, is the spiritual healing. Anointing with oil, people say, wasn't just this physical act that people did, but a lot of times it was medicinal oils that, that the elders would use too. And so in, in other situations, James is saying, listen, you pray, you praise. But here, when something is wrong, it's right to call for help. And your job here, when, when you have prayed and you don't know what to do, is to ask for help. You make the call. And here at Fellowship, you can do this in a number of ways. you got a card right in front of you that says connect on one side and prayer on the other. You can let the prayer team know what your prayer needs are and drop it in one of the offering boxes. And if you want, put your name on it. They'll follow up with you and check in. And those, that team faithfully prays over those prayer requests. And they will contact you and they will keep up with you. You can even come up after the service and, and we've got people from the prayer team that stand right over here and they will pray for you. And if the music is too loud, they'll stop out into the hallway right here and you can talk and they will pray for you. We've got elders who pray for you. And if you have something that you want the elders to pray for, we would be glad to do that. And Amy talked about we're, do, we're launching groups. We've got 30, about 30 groups that you can plug into. Not all of them. That would take up your week. But, but, but pick one. Maybe two, if you're, if you're that so inclined. Get into your group and have your group pray for you. It's a great place to ask for help because here's what's great. Look at what James says when you call out to help, when you call out to the elders, when you call out to the church that those elders represent. Look at what happens in verse 15. He says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, here's what happens when you come to the elders, when you come to the church. James is saying, when you can't do it anymore, and you are tired, and you are burned out, and you are worn out, and you call to the church for help, the church responds. And you will be healed. Now, from experience, that healing may not be what you expect, but there is healing. Now, as elders, as we have prayed, as I have prayed for people, I have seen physical healing. I've seen cancer leave. I've also seen cancer stay. I've seen cancer go in remission, and I've seen it return. I've seen pain relieved and be done. I've also seen pain relieved and come. And I've seen pain stay. I've seen addiction broken and then addiction run back into. 
But here's what I always see. Whenever the elders pray, whenever a group prays, whenever finally somebody says, I can't do it anymore, and they call for help. What I always see is that the person who is struggling alone now has people. People that know, people that care, and there is forgiveness there. One of the, one of the reasons this says, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. When the elders do pray for people, one of the questions that I or one of the elders always ask is, is there any unrepentant sin in your life? Is there anything going on in your life that you haven't spoken out loud and told someone? Because sometimes when we hold on to sin like that, it gives Satan a way in to let doubt and fear ravage a soul and a family. And sometimes when people have confessed that sin, healing has happened right then because there is forgiveness. And there's hope. They realize they don't have to do this alone. There's healing in this community of believers because what I've always seen is when people make the call to the church, the church always responds. There have been freezers full of food. There have been yards that have been mowed so people can, can rest. There's been what needs to happen so that healing can take place. Now, James is going to do something real interesting because he's going to give us a case study next. And he's going to look at the person of Elijah. Because Elijah captures exactly what James is talking about. Elijah, as a person, has had these huge ups and these huge downs. Right? He has seen God has used him to bring revival and to show God's display of power in this mighty way. And typically when that happens, there is a big drop off for Elijah. And he suffers depression after that. Which, by the way, most pastors experience that. Mondays are like our worst day of the week. I always tell young pastors, don't quit on Monday. Wait till Tuesday, because every Monday we feel like quitting, because we're depressed. We've seen God move, and we've gone into the valley. Elijah is one of those there. His valleys were deep, and his, his mountaintops were high. He had these great times. He led this school of prophets, which I always think with Elijah leading a school of prophets, it had to be something like Hogwarts or the Jedi Temple, right? That's what I imagine. I, I don't think it was, but in my head, I like to picture like it was. He was a celebrity in all terms. If he had a Twitter account, his, his 120 character post might be similar to some of the other ones that we've heard about lately. Because he had his ups and he had his downs. But here's what we see Elijah do. We're going to see exactly what James is talking about, this struggle that we all feel, and we're going to see him, him ask for help. Well, let's look at what we can learn by looking at him. In verse 16, the rest of it, he says, he says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three and a half or for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. 
Now, here's what's interesting about this. James does a summary of two chapters in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17 and, and 18, 17 and 18. And in that, you see God speak to Elijah because he was this prophet, which meant that God would speak to him and he would speak to the nation. Sometimes the leaders of the nations, the king, the, 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 the ones in charge, and he would speak to them the words of God that God gave him to speak for either encouragement, like, man, you're doing a great job, keep it up, which didn't happen very often with the prophets, but sometimes they would. Most of the time, though, they spoke words of conviction and repentance and wanting life to change. And God told Elijah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the king, and I want you to tell him that you're going to pray, and it's going to stop raining. And it's not going to rain again until I tell you to pray for rain. And according to James, that drought lasted three and a half years. And what God wanted this king to do was to repent and confess and realize that God is the one who gives the rain. He is the one uh, who gives the goodness. So for that three and a half year drought, there was no rain. And then God told Elijah, pray. Pray for rain. And now when you read, when you read, 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, you, you see, you get to see what Elijah did. Because what Elijah did is, is, is it says that he got down on his knees and he bowed down to the earth. Because here's where Elijah is. Three and a half years ago, God told him, I promise you, when you pray, rain will come. So Elijah got down on his hands and knees, and in Kings, you can see the king is standing right beside him. He's got a king on one side, he's got a servant that's somewhere around too, and, and he gets on his hands and knees, and it says he says he kneeled down, and, and he, did that turn off? We'll put this over here. He kneeled down to the earth, and he put his head between his knees, and he prayed. Now, we don't know what Elijah prayed when he was down here, but, but, but in the scriptures it said that he prayed fervently here too. And he's, he's relying on the promise of God that says, when I pray, rain will come. And so, so he bowed his head down, and, and I would imagine he said something as simple as, God, you said when I pray, the rain will come. Now bring the rain and show this wicked king just how good you are. And he looks up, and do you know what he sees? Sunshine, not a cloud in the sky. So he looks at his servant and he goes, See what you can see. So the servant looks, and you know, because Elijah's thinking, Maybe my view is a little obscure. I'm down here. Maybe somebody up there can see. The servant comes back and he says, Nothing. There's nothing, not a cloud in the sky. So the scriptures tell us that Elijah did it again. He put his head down and he prayed and, and he asked God to do what God promised that he would do. And he looked up and what did he see this time? Sunshine. Not a cloud in the sky. So what does Elijah do? He goes back down, does it again. God, bring the rain. And I would imagine each time he bowed his head, the prayers got longer and longer and longer because that's what we do, right? God, just do it. You said you were going to do it. Now do it. And he looks up the third time, and what does he see? Sunshine. 
Not a cloud in the sky. He sends a servant to look. Nothing. He does that for seven times. For seven times, he, he bows his head and asks his servant, what do you see? And the servant comes back, not yet, not yet, not yet, for six times. And I want to pause here because many of us are right here in your life somewhere, aren't you? You are relying on the promise of God, and, and, and you know that, that what you're praying for is good, and you know it's, it's from a good place in your heart and in your soul, and it's good for people, and yet, all you keep hearing is, there's nothing. Not yet. Well, the seventh time, Elijah raises his head, and he still sees nothing. And he asks his servant to go look. And he asks for help. And his servant comes back and says, you know what? I, I think I see something. There's a cloud way off in the distance. And, and it's the size of a hand. But it's there. And here's what Elijah does. Elijah stands up and he looks at the king and he says, listen, you better get in your chariot or you're going to get stuck in the mud. And that's Hebrew humor, right? Because he's telling this king, the rain is coming. And sure enough, that small little cloud that's the size of a hand turned into a thunderhead. And the next thing you know, there is rain on the nation. See, James is showing us, you might be on your second Time to put your head down, your third time to put your head down, your fourth time to put your head down. But there is a time that's coming where that small cloud will be seen. There is a time that's coming where there will be healing. There is a time that's coming where hope will move from hope to fruition and you will see it. And it may not be the way you expect and it may not be when you expect, but James is saying, just like Elijah, that time is coming. And so for you, church, James's encouragement is during times of suffering, during times of, of, of cheerfulness, when you're worn out and tired and can't give up, and when you're tempted to turn away and do what's easy, James says there's a better way. That no matter where you are, prayer is there. No matter where you are, prayer is there because God is there. And I don't want you to leave here thinking that your relationship with God is based on what you do and what position you take and what words you say. That is not the basis of this life that James is talking about. This whole book, wholehearted, has been based on the assumption that you have a good and right relationship with God and a personal relationship with God based on what Jesus has done. That his death and his resurrection has, has paid the price and the penalty for your sin. And you have put your anchor in that, not in your ability to make God happy. That that is the way we, we have this relationship with God. And if you think that, that religion is about what you do, you are right. But a relationship with God is based on what Jesus did. And that relationship with God, based on what Jesus did, gives you the ability to pray anytime, anywhere, no matter where you are or where you've been. 
And so if you haven't said yes to Jesus, maybe today is the day that you can do that and stop trying to earn God's love by your own effort and instead just receive the love that's there because of Jesus. Now, many of you have already done this. And so here's my question for you as I finish up. Where have you forgotten that relationship with God? Is it in times of suffering and prolonged suffering where you're tempted to take the easy way? Is it in times of joy and cheerfulness where you feel like you don't need God? Or is it in times of, uh, of weariness and I, where you just want to isolate yourself, not only from the people of God, but maybe from God himself? Because no matter where you are, prayer is there. And so James, for you, says keep praying looking for that small cloud of God's movement that will one day turn into a thunderhead. Keep praising God and thanking him for, your, for his provision for you. Acknowledging him and, and all the things that are going well in your life. And if you're worn out and you're tired and you can't do it on your own anymore, guess what? You weren't designed to do it on your own from the beginning. Reach out to the church. If you need prayer today, there will be people from the prayer team right up here, and they would love to pray for you. Because church, when we do that, we get to be the church that God is asking us to be. And I'm going to tell you right now, with what we're saying in the state of the church, this is the only way to be the church that God is asking us to be, is to fully rely on him in every season of our life. And so let's pray. Jesus, we do rely on you. We rely on what you did at the cross and the resurrection and we rely on what you're doing even today as you draw us closer and closer to you. And God, I pray that, that, that for those here today who have doubt and fear and maybe that doubt and fear has a louder voice than the truth, that you would flip that today and you would give truth the place that it needs, that it would be center in their heart and, and it would reside on the throne of their life. Father, that they would live in this submission to you, letting you define what is good and letting you define what comes in and out of their life and that we would trust you and submit to you. And Father, I pray particularly if, if there are people who, who do have today this, this unconfessed sin, that they would speak it in confession and repentance today and that they would have freedom instead of slavery. Father, that they would have, uh, instead of shame and guilt, Father, that they would, they would, they would experience a, a, a level of, of peace and contentment that they hadn't before. And I pray, God, that all of this would be to your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.